We all start off as new, be it in a new school, a new career, a new community. I was called a parachute candidate over the 2019 campaign, a charged and quite negative name tag at the time, quite similar to the lovely lady connotation I heard as the 2014 Rose of Tralee. And nearly four years on, I'm still learning, developing and challenging my bias. And I want my audience to look at this podcast in the same light, to be challenged and to have their questions answered. This podcast is to push the boundaries for both, those new to an issue and equally those who have a substantial knowledge of an issue. Too often, our discussion is left to the 280 characters of a tweet and we are limited to discussion and ultimately we are starved of creating and developing our own critical thought. I want this podcast to tackle difficult and complicated conversations. We need to speak with people. We need to offer balance by drawing on academics, sharing facts and lived experiences that will lead us to understand and respect our differences. This podcast is not to solve a problem, but to stir a conversation and ultimately create an afterthought to an issue discussed. Welcome to the Parachute Candidate Podcast. In 1922, at the formation of the Irish state, women and Irish girls in Ireland who were perceived to be promiscuous, unmarried mothers, the daughters of unmarried mothers, those who were considered a burden on their families or the state, those who had been sexually abused, those with disabilities or had grown up in the care of the church and state, were forced into clerical-run Magdalene laundries, mother and baby homes and industrial schools the last closing in 1996. It is believed over the course of those 74 years, over 10,000 girls and women were imprisoned, forced into unpaid labour, suffered physical and psychological and sexual maltreatment, had their babies taken away with no trace of reuniting. My conversation today is with Mary Steed, the daughter of Josephine Bassett, Josie as she was known. Josie herself was a child of an unwed mother and spent 26 years under the care of religious orders. Josie re-entered the institutions when she herself was pregnant, entering first in St. Patrick's Home in Dublin, then Arvura in Meath, then near the end of her pregnancy with Mary, Josie was moved to Bespera Mother and Baby Home in Cork. Born in Bespera in 1960, Mary was two when adopted by a family from Philadelphia as one of more than 2,000 banished babies exported from Ireland to the United States of America. Mary finally reunited some 40 years later with her biological mother, Josie, in England in 2002. Here is our conversation. Well, thank you, Maria, and I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Just to start off, I was born in Ireland in 1960 at the Cork. Besborough Mother Baby Home and was uh, selected to be adopted abroad to the United States. So I was um, sent to a couple in Philadelphia and spent most of my, well, growing up until I was about 23, living there, going to school there. Um, I was followed by a brother who also came out of the Besborough Home, but two years later, different mother. Um, so we were raised, you know, as my adopted parents' children, we had a pretty good upbringing. I don't besmirch any of it. 
Um, we always knew we were adopted from Ireland, which is one thing I, I definitely gave a lot of credit to my adopted parents for. Um, but, you know, they said, look, like, why would we try to hide that? You were both either two or over two when you came. You were walking, talking. There just seemed no point to trying to erase that history. And like a lot of American adoptive parents, they really weren't told a lot about our backgrounds by the nuns. You know, they would receive these rosy letters up until the time we arrived about how we were growing and thriving and milestones and so forth and so on. But nothing about our history, our parents. It was kind of all shrouded in that, well, they must have died in a car accident kind of myth, you know. Fast forward, I, again, do give credit to my adoptive mother. Um, she had decided to take a trip. Her, her background is Irish-American. Her parents were from Ireland. So they were going on a holiday, and she had decided this one year that they wanted to stop at Besborough and see if they could get information from my brother and myself. And it was their first time visiting. Because everything that they had done to get us was through correspondence. They never flew there. We were met in New York um, at the airport. And so this would have been their first opportunity to actually visit. But she went with my aunt and uncle. And they did meet with the woman who has been in charge at Besboro up until it was deregistered in 2010, uh, Sister Sarto. And again, she really didn't give them much background for me. Um, she told a rather horrifying story to my adoptive mother about my brother's mother and how she literally clutched him, like gotten fisticuffs with the nuns when it came time for him to leave, that she really didn't want to let go of him. And it evolved into some sort of row. And I'm sure the poor woman, you know, took it on the chin for that. But I think it devastated my adoptive mother because until that point, she didn't really see the mothers in the background, if you will. Kind she, of felt that she had been misled. Because you had mentioned in terms of the correspondence to that point was through letters or perhaps phone calls. Did she? So your, your adopted mother really believed then it was children who had been put up for adoption? Yeah, I think she really felt that we were true orphans at the time. Um, and that was how it was always, you know, that like here at, at the home or at the orphanage would be the way that even the Sacred Heart Sisters described it. So, you know, what else did she know? Um, but yeah, that, that literally kind of rocked her. And the interesting part of that is up until that point, so this would have been 1983, um, my adopted parents had been steadfast donors every Christmas to say the Sacred Hearts in Cork, um, I would I remember them vividly writing out a check every year for $100 and sending it off to Cork. Now, we're talking from roughly 1961 up through 1983 they did this. The year my mother learned all of this was the year the donation stopped. I think that kind of spoke volumes. You know, my brother did learn about it later, but it was through me, my adoptive mother, for whatever reason, couldn't bring herself to tell him that story. And I said, look, you know, this poor guy's drinking at his circumstances. He thinks he was abandoned. It's just made his life a rough misery. He needs to know this story, that this was a woman who desperately loved him and wanted to keep him. And I did finally, you know, tell him about it when we had the right opportunity to sit down and chat. And it just, it broke him. 
I mean, he cried like the two-year-old he was when he left um, and said, I never realized. I just didn't know. Yeah. At any point, Mary, had you longed for answers? I did. um, And actually, just prior, I'll back up a bit here. Prior to my mother's visiting Ireland, um, I actually got pregnant my senior year in high school, in Catholic school. Um, So you probably know about how well that went down in 1978. And I was forced to relinquish my daughter through Catholic charities. Now, there's an interesting dichotomy with my adoptive mother, and it's this. She was a, a full champion of my right or my brother's right to know where we came from and, you know, let me try to get you as much info as possible. Yet she still had that Catholic guilt and shame such that it forced her her to force me out of the home, even against my father's wishes at the time, which I didn't know then. Um, So, yeah, you know, I had been through all that and her way of dealing with it was to just not deal with it. by that year, that that year they made that trip, I had made the decision to move to Florida just because I didn't want to be around, you know, that level of, I don't know. Um, it, it was toxic between my mother and I. Um, but the one point that we could agree on is like what she learned during this trip and how devastating that was for her to learn that. And maybe, you know, maybe it gave her a little, I don't know. Needless to say, she's no longer with us. Um, so. I guess my my real curious, I mean, I've always been curious, but I didn't know, like, how do you go about it? If my mother actually went to this place and all they told her was my mother was musical, what other information can I get? So it wasn't until the 90s and I started to kind of get involved in adoption rights activism on the internet um, that I came across a band of people based in Dublin who had started the Adopted People's Association of Ireland. And, you know, quickly gave me tips what to do. Other people sort of joined our merry online gang over the years. And we all kind of played it strength to strength. You know, if somebody knew how to write a letter, what to do, who to contact, uh, we would just share that information with each other. So eventually, um, I did get, I wrote to the Sacred Heart Nuns. Um, again, they gave me a treasure trove in one sense which I'll explain later, but on the other hand, again, it was just this stupid, non-identifying, like, what am I supposed to do with this? You know, yeah, my mother was small and dark like me, and she was musical. Great information to have. Doesn't really So there wasn't, there wasn't any detail of who her family were, where they came from, what age she no. was, any traumas that no, she had well, gone they, through? They did have an age for her, and of course, I did know her name because I was able to get uh, my original Irish birth certificate. We kind of, it, it, it's a sad thing, but it, and it almost sort of pits us one against the other, or at least the government would like to try to do that. Those of us that were sent to the States obviously came with a lot more background material, you know, than your average Irish adoptee. So generally, as part of our immigration paperwork, you will have a copy of your original Irish birth cert or at least the mother's name. So that was one step that I had, or one leg up that I had over my comrades that um, they didn't have. So I, I guess because I knew her name, they didn't redact any of that from the documents. But the age that they had down for her ultimately turned out to be incorrect. And that's a story in and of itself, and how institutional Ireland 
dealt with children and their identities and how loosey-goosey they were with all of that. So I did know her name. I had an approximate age, or at least what I felt was accurate at the time. And I did manage to trace her to England. Um, And she had never had any other children and was delighted to be reconnected. You know, I'm conscious for those listening and even my own ignorance, and this is where I really want you to 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 correct me, um, because we in Ireland had um, mother and baby homes, and we also had institutions, and we also had Magdalene laundries. So am I correct yeah. in saying all three were seen as separate identities in many ways, but obviously the overarching uh, clerical handling, government handling, community awareness. But what you often find then is the transition between all. And what I mean for those listening is, you know, if um, a person, predominantly a uh, woman uh, or, or young child, would move between all three often. A- am I right in saying that, Mary? That is correct. Yes, there were many women. My mother would be the classic example of that. Um, you may start out, let's say, in an industrial school because perhaps one or both of your parents had died or your mother was unmarried and adoption wasn't a thing back in Ireland until 1952. So if you were a child born before that, it would be more likely you'd either be boarded out, fostered out, or sent on to some type of institution. It might start as an orphanage and then you end up in industrial school. And once you age out of that system, it's then, you know, again, your life, your life is being dictated and driven by these religious orders who are saying, okay, you're coming out of industrial school. We're going to send you to the Good Shepherd Sisters. So in my mother's case, she was sent from St. Dominic's in Waterford, the industrial school, to Cork, where she spent a year, I believe it was, working in a sewing room that was run by, um, the Mercy Sisters at St. Marie's of the Isles. And they sort of had a, you know, and again, all these institutions are linked and, you know, there's pathways, like definite pathways. They all knew where to send people. Let's put it that way. So in my mother's case, she was then sent on from there, showing promise at sewing, I guess, to the Good Shepherds at Sunday's Well Magdalene Laundry. And she was put to work in their sewing room for 10 years came out of there with another job referral from the Good Shepherd Sisters to work in Dublin at Our Lady's Hospital. On paper at that time, she would have been, let's see, she went into Sunday's Well when she would have been about 17. Wow, okay. She came out when she was roughly 27, 26, depends on whose numbers you're looking at. And then she found herself pregnant, met my father at a dance, And they sent her sort of this circuitous route. It was kind of interesting because I've now obviously since gotten a fairly healthy paper trail of her movements. But um, she was first placed at St. Patrick's Mother and Baby Home on the Navin Road. And from there, they sent her out to Good Shepherds at Dunboyne. Now, these were stays of literally a week or less. Um, She was put out for holiday help. She was sent to work for some solicitor in South Dublin um, and came back after Christmas. And then she got sent down to Besborough. So I'm not sure what the reasoning was, why she was lobbed from place to place. But I think those listening could tell 
um, even just the journey of your mom, that there was multiple of these interlinked places and spaces where women would move. Um, Correct. And, you know, from, from as much as you wish to share of her life, um, because in many cases we are, you know, Irish women are often shared the sentiment we are our mother's daughters. We're built on the shoulders of women who've gone before us. Um, and I, and I'd love, you know, I'd love to really hear her journey and how that journey has obviously impacted your life, um, particularly in the early years uh, and where you find yourself now being uh, uh, an incredible advocate for adoption um, and and many uh, victims and survivors of the Magdalene Audrey's in all its forms. Well, I think it, it, the key turning point for me was along my journey searching for her. This would have been back mid-90s. Um, I was starting to get bits and pieces. As I said, I did get some information from the Sacred Heart Sisters and one of the things that intrigued me was they showed that she had entered or had been sent to uh, Besboro via the Good Shepherds, and Sunday's Well was mentioned in the paperwork. Now, I had not a clue at the time. I don't think there were many people, to, you know, the Magdalene Laundries and any awareness of that had just started to bubble, you know, up through uh, Mary Raftery's work and some of the early stuff that had come out. But most of us were relatively clueless, like, what the hell were the Good Shepherds? You know, what was Sunday's Well? And where was she? And what was she doing? So I did write to the Good Shepherds. And I mean, my God, the letter I got back, you would have thought she'd spent 10 years at a holiday camp. Um, again, it was just this sort of life storytelling. Oh, Josie had a beautiful voice and extraordinarily gifted with colors and needlework and blah, blah, blah. You know, like, that's not what I'm looking for. But whatever, it was what it was. Um, so that was my first awareness that what I was looking at, these these documents I was getting back, it's I, I, it suddenly occurred to me, my mother was in a Magdalene laundry. And how did this happen? You know, so that sort of got the act. Well, I, I think the activism has always been there. Maybe it's genetic. You know, maybe it's just me. I don't know. But I've always felt like part true crime detective and part activist and the two kind of collide and I'm not satisfied until I get to the truth you know because I think we all agree that really to have justice you have to have truth you know to start with so knowing what those details are is extremely important to me and always has been and then the other part of it was also okay now I've kind of gone along and done this journey or I'm in the midst of it what can I pay forward to the next person? So then it became about helping others, people in the States who didn't have a clue how to trace their adoption from Ireland. Um, so yeah, it was about paying it forward. It was about increasing the awareness. And at that time, I had become close to my colleague, Claire McGettrick, and her now wife, Angie. And um, we would talk about it. Ange, Angie's mother had a Magdalene background as well. So we were trying to build as much information as we could, do as much research as we could. And I had started, uh, we, well, I shouldn't say I, we started a website called Justice for Magdalens, um, you know, trying to gather names, uh, death certificates, anything we could to know about these women, who they were, how they ended up there, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then we had the good grace to be joined by the incredible James Smith and Catherine O'Donnell, um, who were coming at it from the academic standpoint. Um, but we kind of quickly, you know, <laughs> squashed that notion and turned them into activists. And they, they've just, you know, become incredible allies. Um, so their interests became a little more vested than, you know, just we're looking at this academically. But fair play to them without their work and without their research, they probably all still be in the dark, you know, about how these institutions actually operated and how much crossover there was between all all the types of, of institutions. Just to take it up to the point where you had your your own uh, baby girl called Kerry, right? Am I am I right in saying that? And and then you you met your your birth mother. I did, and Kerry, yeah, and within and, a year, well, a couple of years of each other. Wow. May I ask that that first initial conversation with both those important women in your life? I, I've always found it interesting because it was so natural with both of them. There was never anything awkward. I, you know, and I've heard a lot of adoptees and, and mothers speak to their experiences. And sometimes that first meeting can be awkward or cold or, you know, it can go anyway. Um, I was very lucky though that for both of them, it was like we were picking up threads of conversations we just had, you know, a week before we first spoke on the phone. Um, so just the, the, the lack of awkwardness just made it that much more special. Um, it could have gone any number of ways wrong with, with my mother. And I realized that I knew when I was searching for her, I had to be careful. This was a subject or an experience that, that touched so many women. It drove them deep into caves of mm -hmm. misery, you know, that they had to keep this secret. And I was just so fortunate. I remember the day I found out um, that she had told her husband, uh, this woman who had been a lovely lady in London who helps us out all the time, Judy Campbell, she um, had been doing some digging and some preliminary phone calls because she felt like we both agreed it may be less threatening coming from a woman from Tipperary living in London. <laughs> She's not going to sound as far into them if, if she makes a phone call. So um, she was doing all this background work for me and ended up speaking to Josie's husband at the time and he knew exactly what she was talking about oh that's the baby that Josie gave up in Ireland so we knew I wasn't a secret so that that definitely helped um the same with my daughter she kind of grew up in a fairly open um adoptive environment where her parents did encourage her and her brother if they wanted information, we'll do what we can to get it for you. Um, I was able to write her a letter when I relinquished her and asked that it be given to her at an appropriate age, you know, whenever they felt she was ready to read it. And I guess when she started asking questions, um, they did give her the letter. And, you know, that I think made her feel more comfortable in her skin. And by the time that we did reconnect, it was like, okay, yeah you know, welcome back. Um, now we have since learned, um, this, this drives to the generational aspect of Ireland's culture and history. Um, Carrie herself had to give up a baby when wow. she was 16. Um, so I now have my eldest granddaughter who is also named Carrie, but she's IE. Um, so she's been the newest member to rejoin the fold. She's been reunited, and I got to meet her this year, which was tremendous. 
And she just, she's so fascinated and thrilled by our, our history. She just finds it incredible, you know? Um, but yeah, that's, that's four generations. And my mother, of course, was also born out of wedlock. So. But phenomenal to your point of a later generation, they're positively influenced by curiosity. And I think that's powerful. I think that's, that's for me what the importance of these type conversations are because, um, we need to be curious and we need to understand where we came from in order to understand where we are now and where we want to go. And I think that's fundamentally flawed in our education system, in our politics and, 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 and on the world of media, both online and offline. I, I, I really believe that. From what you just shared in terms of having four generations of women being a part of this, dare I ask, like, do you hold blame? And if so, who, who do you hold blame to? And 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 the traumas that are involved in that. The blame is always an interesting one, isn't it? I the way I liken it, it I blame the state ultimately because the state had a choice to make back in the day. Um, and and really, when you stop and think about it, up until Ireland became a free state, you didn't see these dynamics of foisting off children. Children were communally raised. If a woman got pregnant outside of marriage, oh well, you know aunt so-and-so or grandmother will bring the child up. It wasn't nearly as stigmatic as it became in the late 1920s, early 1930s. And again, I think my mother was caught in that, that, that the sort of the start of that. And people were rabid at that point. I, I will tell you the story of learning who my mother actually is. Um, again, I was led to believe based on a date of birth that she was a certain Josephine who was born in Wexford and was one of four children out of wedlock and, um, the children placed in, you know, various institutions, but could never get any confirmation of that. Come to find out, thanks to DNA, I have now bumped into first and second cousins, um, all from this one area in Tipperary. Um, and some of them knew more of the story than you know certainly i did um but you know had kept it going and and had resolved that they wanted to help find missing cousins like myself um so found out my mother was one of three children born out of wedlock but in tipperary not in wexford and she was born in 1929 not 1933 the the identity that she had been given at some stage of her life was that of an eight-month-old girl who had died in Wexford. Now, they, I understand they had the same name, you know, similar family background, but it just, to me, it was appalling that they didn't even care enough to make sure that this was the right child in the system. Yeah, due diligence. You know, have, have birth no due diligence whatsoever. Um, so, yeah, she, she was taken from her mother along with two siblings by nosy neighbors who at that stage were, oh, but, you know, this is supposed to be a perfect, moral, pure society. We can't have this woman, Ellen, you know, running around with three children, even though she was perfectly fit, and, you know, was raising them along with her siblings. Made no sense to me, but that that was the Ireland of the day. And that's when we saw that that stigma kind of come forward. So I blame the state. If, if, if you allow a religious institution or institutions to tell people how to think, what to do and what to, you know, they don't fit some sort of societal, societal norm. 
this is where it goes tits up, pardon the expression, but it, it was really ultimately the state who could have backed away from that and said, you know what? We've had recommendations, Dr. Noel Brown being one of the, the foremost advocates for true mother and child care. Um, they had opportunities at every corner to make this the right, you know, to exercise their true duty of care for the children of their nation, who they seemed to think were the most wonderful thing. Um, we were supposed to be cherished, not cast away. So at the end of the day, I put it at the state's feet. Was it fed by the church and not just the Catholic church, but also the church of Ireland? Yeah, it was definitely. And, you know, people like to blame society. Well, it, society is going to do what society is taught. And if they're taught to stigmatize and shame women and their children, they're going to do it. The state just put an official stamp of approval on it. Yeah. For those listening, I had the honor of being a part of and supporting over 230 survivors and victims of, of Magdalene Laundries in Dublin 2018 at the Dublin Honor Magdalene's. Mm. And uh, I met the heroic women and, and man that you mentioned in, in terms of the smaller group like Claire and Catherine and Jim, James and Maeve. And, uh, yes, I'm leaving out the inimitable Maeve. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Maeve O'Rourke. Um, it was extraordinary to me at the time, a couple of things. A, to pick up your point of what you were sharing there. A lot was going on in communities. I met uh, survivors who were part of a very healthy, happy home, who were not a burden on their family, but as shared to me, was deemed a burden on the community because of the family size. And then a local leader by a parish priest offered the family for two of the youngest girls to go to final school and then got moved. And then I met many women who shared, I don't want to say similar stories, but of similar nature, because I think every one of a survivor and victim experienced their, their lives the way they did. And it was outstanding. Um, and then you have people who knew exactly what was going on, like our state at the time, the many governments since, um, and like community, community people who knew some a small cohort who were doing different things to remove women and children safely in a vigilante type way too, which I think also deserved to be mentioned. But how did we just erase these women in our history? Which leads me on really to your point in your advocate work on education. Like we, we talked about women being erased around the centennials um, who were part of the 1916 rising and, and the civil war. But even around that time, there were women that were commodities to the state and to the country both in terms of adoption, both in terms of industrial work, like your mother, as you shared, who, were, who was a good sewer, those who, who could turn out bags of laundry for, for big places and big spaces, and were obviously lucrative to some. But I just don't understand how even now we don't look at it to the extent that we should, or we talk about it. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that education process and where you feel we need to go in order to absolutely shed light in all the forms. I mean, it's an uncomfortable truth. It's a national shame, as former Taoiseach Enda Kenny had shared in his speech of apology. Could have, it should have come sooner than that. But I don't know, even now, looking at that apology in 2013 to 2023, are we looking at it to the extent that you as survivors and victims are deserving of? I, I don't think we are. I think, um, you know, a lot of it is still, it's, it's 
I mean, here you look at the United States and our history with slavery and, and the treatment of indigenous people and marginalized people. We're no better. And it's, it's taken us 400 years, you know, just to come to grips with slavery. And even at that, you still see the rampant bigotry and racism that exists today. I don't know that you ever get over it. There are always going to be people who, I hate to say it, but at the end of the day, really don't care about women and children. Um, they can shout off the rooftops about, you know, save the children and all the conspiracy theories that they have. And meanwhile, they don't even recognize the harm that they're doing to actual victims, you know, by, by couching it that way. We don't have honest discussions about what real abuse looks like, about what real trafficking looks like, about what real violence against women, against children. Like, we don't care enough about women and children, especially. Um, we, we scream that we do, but I think at the end of the day, if it's not their child, it's not my mother, if it's not my child, not my aunt, whatever, I, it's nothing to do with me. And I really don't care. You know, I, I just think we have developed into a very self-centered society that, and, and, and the, the sad part about that is they don't pay attention to the fact that don't pay attention to it. It continues to thrive. You know, we've tried to look at various models. What's the best way to get information out there? Obviously it's to start children young, you know, maybe, well, maybe not as primary school students that might, they might not be able to grasp all of the nuances of that type of education. But certainly by secondary school, I think you can get teenagers thinking about, gee, you know, this could have been me. They can attach some sort of personal resonance to it that says, God, you know, if not for 50 years, I could have been this girl because I'm kind of a little cheeky and I get in trouble and that could have been me, you know, sent off to a Magdalene laundry or, gee, my mother died last year. Like, what if the state just decided my father couldn't raise us and sent us off to some residential school? You said a word there. Um, and right now in the European Parliament, we're, we're working on a revision of the anti-trafficking directive. And actually, as my team and I are working on this report, you know, there's so many similarities, Mary, between your journey and many others. Mm-hmm. And and what trafficking is, we just we just classify right. it differently because we're not ready right. to admit our country trafficked women and, and young girls for for years, and had slaves. Which I I, I have to say I, I always find it rather amusing when I see these posts pop up about the myth of Irish slavery. You know that they all believe that indentured servants were the same as transatlantic chattel slavery, and I I always try to educate always. Um, I bring up the fact that, well, you know, Ireland did have slaves of their own, but they were called Magdalens and they worked in these institutions for no pay doing commercial labor, violating Ireland's own 1930 slave anti-slavery act. So is the aspiration from an education standpoint then to have in, as you mentioned, age appropriate. So like a primary school level, uh, particularly a secondary and of course, a uh, third level that we are having these There's conversations. Nothing. Absolutely. I think that's so important. Um, that and and for the, the general public to have access to as much institutional documentation as possible. So in other words, I mean, obviously, if it's my personal files, now I, I don't care. My stuff's in the Epic Museum, so I'm certainly not, you know, public shy. Um, but for people other than wanting to keep their own personal stuff unavailable to the public, 
there should be a national repository of records of data, photos, whatever it may be, any kind of media um, associated with these institutions and easily available to students, to professors, to people who can make sense of it in a classroom, teach about it, set up film nights, you know, whatever it might be, um, just to spread awareness and hopefully, again, from happening. Do you see, and for those listening, I'll make sure and include additional information because I think there's, there, well, there has been a number of commission reports over the last number of years. I don't think go far enough than what I feel survivors and victims are deserving, particularly those that are not here anymore and to honour their, their journeys. Do you think the Sean McDermott rehabilitation of that area would be a safe space to hold those, those educational forms? Yes, I think it would be a safe and a meaningful space because it is What's the word I'm looking for? You're, you're, you're turning something that was horrible and evil into something that's a positive benefit for the community and for the nation at large and for visitors, you know, people coming from abroad who might be interested. Um, it provides a number of things for survivors, direct impacts, housing, you know, assistance, educational assistance, whatever it may be that people need. I think it's the perfect place to house all of that and make it available, you know, where possible to the public. I mean, obviously, again, not all information needs to be shared if people don't want it to be, if it's their own personal information. But insofar as we can um, get as much of it out to the public and to educators as we can. Just as you were sharing there, and I was thinking back, choice is a powerful thing, isn't it? Having a choice. Um, And I remember meeting the many women who came to Dublin in 2018, June of 2018, to be a part of the conversation of the listening exercise to meet other, and I say survivors and victims because I don't feel I should determine which name goes or which label goes on another. And that's why I'm inclusive of of, of all, but please correct me if if I'm wrong in doing so. But I was really astounded, Mary, at the many women who hadn't even told anybody. Yeah. who had taken phone calls from from us on 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 the 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 coordination team the small team that we were you know call back in an hour no one's home then I'll call you from a different line who showed up to Dublin to share and and have their stories heard but then we're going to step back into the unknown because that for them is incredibly important and I was I was heartbroken that 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 those women didn't feel safe and trusted in them in them themselves or in, in our state still. And this was a number of years after the national apology from then Taoiseach into Kenny. This was after a number of commission reports. And then you have women who, when arrived to Mansion House, and I encourage anybody to look up the many articles that were around in, in June 2018 on this, but arrived to the Mansion House to an official dinner. And there was hundreds of people on this, like hundreds of people and I remember one woman grabbed me and said, why are they here? Are we at the right place? In such an innocence that uh, I had never, never heard before, you know, and I was like, they're, they're here for you. And we both got upset because she couldn't figure out why. Um, and I remember her telling me, but we were told we were dirty. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that, I mean, God, what a magnificent, I think all of us were just wrecked on those buses coming off when we saw the crowds. Um, Yuck. And you're absolutely right. A lot of the women didn't fathom that that's why these people were here, because they want to say, we're sorry to you. They want to embrace you. That was incredibly moving and emotional. 
um, for my own mother, even because that's it's it's an interesting dichotomy. Having experienced both mother and baby home and a Magdalene laundry and industrial school, my mother could chirp away for days on end about Besborough, all the people she knew there, the nuns, how she handled me day to day, etc. However, she would never talk about her Magdalene background, and. Unfortunately, it led to us getting her application in too late because then she passed um, shortly after the scheme was announced. Um, and we just couldn't convince her to do it because she kept saying, "I oh, no, no, I was never in those places. Well, I knew she was, you know, but I certainly wasn't going to push it at her if it made her that uncomfortable that she couldn't even speak about the experience. So I don't know what happened to her there. The little bit that she spoke about industrial school, it was just, oh, when I was, when I was at school with the nuns or she would talk about occasional day trips that the, the nuns would take some of the children on to um, Tremor. But other than that, she was deadly silent. But then I started to hear from more and more people, especially expats living in the UK, that it was very common in Irish communities in the UK for people to be bullied about their experiences in a residential school or a Magdalene laundry. And for that reason, they just kept their mouths shut about it. They staged dumb. They didn't want to say anything about their background. Oh yeah, I went to school in Ireland and that was it because they get bullied by their own, which is the really sad part about it. So it's, it's interesting in that the, more prevalent sexual freedom, if you will, in England allowed a lot of Irish mothers to be able to come out and speak about the children that they had lost. We have found far better luck with people reuniting with mothers who had fled to the UK than we had with the women who stayed in Ireland, because they're still living in shame and stigma from that side of it. But in the UK, I think because sex was not such a taboo subject, people had common law marriages all the time, children, you know, it, it just didn't matter as much. And it left them a little more free to speak to those experiences. But she would not talk about her Magdalene experience. So yeah, there there is still that hiding in shame. You know, the, the premise of the Magdalene laundry was when we when we moved away from our neighbor, the United Kingdom, and regained our own stateship, the the purity and the cleanliness and the blanket of judgment fell on women. Uh, hence the reason why these institutions, these Magdalene laundries, mother and baby homes became so rampant. It was yeah. it was a cause of many indecision by by many all the same. Before we leave, I wanted to talk about next steps in in terms of more awareness, education, understanding where we've been, where where we are and where we need to go. And also the thread of spirituality within that and whether that still exists for you. Because to your point, I was really astounded by the many women still living in Ireland who still practice faith because that was important for them. That kept them having higher conversations than those that would have been a part of the clerical abuse over their lives. And and I'd love to hear from you on that. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I'm not religious in any sense. I'm definitely atheist and have been for many years. I actually formally left when they still had the defectio absolvi formali process um, through the Catholic Church. I did do a formal leaving through the archdiocese in Philadelphia, 
which was an interesting meeting and conversation in and of itself. Um, at that time, Cardinal Bevelock was secretary who was in the room taking notes, and I had prepared pages of why I was, you know, was leaving. And um, he said, the, the cardinal said, well, okay, I guess we need to contact whatever parish your baptism is lodged with, um, you know, to have that marked as annulled, basically. Um, and I said, okay, well, that would be the Diocese of Cork and Ross. It would be lodged with them. And the secretary rolled her eyes, said, I have to write to Ireland? <laughs> said, well, maybe don't traffic children from there, and that wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, I'm very much an ex-ex-ex-Catholic. But I do, I, I understand why the women cling to it, and I understand that they, they maybe need that spirituality because it cleanses so many other demons. And I think it can be summed up, in fact, I, th I think it was most beautifully summed up, to me at least, uh, by Philomena Lee, of course, who is a very well-known Irish mother. Um, I asked her one time, I said, you know, Phil, how, like, how are you not bitter? Like I was still carrying a lot of anger at nuns, and, you know, whatever, at certain points in my life. And she said, Mary, I was a psychiatric nurse for over 30 years. And I saw what bitterness and hate did to people, how damaged they became as a result of it. She said, I had two small children to raise, and I knew I couldn't be that person and couldn't allow myself to get to the point where I couldn't serve my children because of the bitterness and anger, and I had to let it go. And she said, it gradually allowed me to reapproach the church, but from my own spiritual standpoint, not the institutional church. So I think some of them have come to grips with it in that way, that their spirituality has sort of evolved into something beyond the institutional norms. I have some trouble with that because I still feel like hey, you're kind of being complicit, though. You're, you're sitting in their pews. You're possibly giving money every week. I, I just couldn't do it. It's not for me. Um, but I do understand and deeply respect the women who, you know, have relied on their faith to get them through it. Is there anything I didn't ask, Mary, that you would want to make sure people heard? Looking around at you know what we're going through now with the whole adoption information and tracing bill and potential redress on foot of that being announced, I obviously I think we've gotten the short end of the stick. I don't think the government listened in any way, shape, or form. We've held many consultations, meetings ad nauseum over all of these issues, but we still don't get listened to. And I would just urge anyone to stop and think for a minute. I mean. I, I can't tell you how many people I know in Ireland who, you know, had no direct connection to adoption. But if you asked them, told them, take a peek at your family tree, they would tell you at least one story about a child that was lost to adoption or a mother or aunt or someone in the family who was sent to a laundry. So just stop and think about that. It really is a part of all of our history. Uh, there's not a single family, I don't think, in Ireland that wasn't impacted by it in one way or another. Maybe they don't think that they are, but those generational echoes kind of carry on. And, you know, to, to support us and, and just, you know, we're not crazy people. We're not less than. We're equal citizens. We would like to all believe that. Um, but we could really use more support and more understanding and more feedback from people like how did this impact you? i would like to hear 
more from the wider public. Tell us your stories, even if it's not your own. It could be your great aunt twice removed. Still part of your story, your family history. To your point, we need to, uh, yeah, and I think what has been so like a common thread throughout this whole conversation, which I'm so grateful for, was even despite all the generations of Pert you, you went through, Mary, that you were still here with understanding and ensuring all voices are heard and not just some. Um, and I think that is a powerful attribute that you hold. And I'm super grateful for you gifting us time. And I will include more information when this goes out, just so people begin the journey, uh, be it as Mary rightly pointed out, to share more of your own family history, but equally understanding our history and how uh, how many women and children were erased and deserve not to be. We need to right that wrong. Um, so thank you very much, Mary. I will hopefully you, speak to you soon. Yes, thank you. On behalf of this state, the government and our citizens deeply regret and apologize unreservedly to all those women for the hurt that was done to them, for the, any stigma they suffered as a result of the time they spent in the Magdalene Laundry. Let me conclude account caller by again speaking directly to the women whose experiences in the Magdalene Laundries have negatively affected their subsequent lives. As a society, for many years, we failed you. We forgot you, or if we thought of you at all, we did so in untrue and offensive stereotypes. This is a national shame for which I say again, I'm deeply sorry and offer my full and heartfelt apologies. At the conclusion of my discussions with one group of the Magdalene women, one of those present sang Whispering Hope. A line from that song stays in my mind. When the dark midnight is over, watch for the breaking of day. Let me hope that this day and this debate, excuse me, heralds a new dawn for all those who feared that the dark midnight might never end. If you wish to learn more, I encourage you to look at the Justice for Magdalene's research website. It is a resource for people affected by and interested in Ireland's Magdalene institutions. There is an abundance of information and teaching resources for people. I also encourage you to follow the brilliant work by Dr. Catherine O'Donnell, Dr. Maeve O'Rourke, Dr. James Smith and Claire McGettrick and her most recent PhD work with Clan Project on Adoption Knowledge. There's still so much to uncover. Unmask and shed light on for survivors and victims, even now, in 2023. There are so many untold experiences lived by thousands of women and families, and I hope this conversation sheds some light on the continued fight by Mary and many, many others.